Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Second Samuel 5, 1 through 16. You'll find it on the screen on each side of me or in a pew Bible. <clears throat> then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. <clears throat> so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and inhabitants of the land who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Millow inward. And David became great, greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees also, carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And, those, and these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Ibar, Shobad, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nafeg, Japhia, Eliada, Eliada, and Eliftalet. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Good morning, Faith Family at the Landing. Thank you for praying for Pastor Andrew and me as we were in San Antonio, Texas this week. We learned a lot. We're challenged, we're encouraged, blessed to reconnect with so many good friends and see the hand of the Lord as he instructed us. Let me pray and ask God's help to tackle 2 Samuel chapter 5. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful truths of your faithfulness that are on display for us in this portion of this chapter. Speak to us. Pour your faithfulness into us. Establish us in your faithfulness so that we are happy to say to all who will give a hearing to our voice, God is faithful. My God is faithful to me. Would you strengthen us as we 
give attention now to this passage. And as your Holy Spirit comes in great power to instruct us and to illumine us and open our eyes and unstop our ears and quicken our hearts to love and cherish what we see in your holy, inerrant word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And we'll we'll now stand under it to learn from it as you teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. The daily crisis every one of us faces is, can I believe in God's faithfulness? Is God going to be faithful? Is he going to be true to his word in my life? I know others have stories and testimonies of his faithfulness, but is he going to be faithful to me? That's the crisis every one of us faces, not just every morning, but multiple times throughout the day. You're facing it right now. It's a crisis of faith. Can I trust in God? Is God faithful? Does he keep his promises? Does he come through on his warnings? Does he always remain faithful to his mercies? When you look through the Old Testament, the main point of the Old Testament is to help encourage us, according to Romans 15, that we would have hope in God. You'll see that happen to you, even as you give careful attention with me right now to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Deep inside your heart is a battle with unbelief. We all have it. We say to the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And the enemy knows and he sends demonic forces. And the enemy will say, even as we're reading the word and even as Paul just read it, and we'll read it here with care, did God actually say? That's what the devil as a snake said to Eve in the garden. Genesis 3.1. That's what the Spirit says to you when you open your Bible in the morning or at night or when you think about it during the day. Did God actually say, can I trust God to be faithful to His Word in all its promises, warnings, and mercies? One of the strongest heroes of mine, a man's man, a man that I love and have learned from just because of these little Brief letters that he's written is a man whose name is Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford. He lived between 1600 and 1661. He was a pastor in Scotland of a small church in a town called Anwath. And he was bold. He was fearless. Not just because he was a pastor, but because he loved to preach the gospel. He loved for people to hear that their salvation by faith alone in grace, through grace alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. He gave his life for preaching that. He said Christ is Lord of the church and that we must become citizens of heaven by faith in Christ to be saved. He was so effective at that that the monarch of England hated him for it. He's the pastor of this small little Scottish church, but England was taking over the UK at the time in the 1600s, and the King of England and the other monarchy did not like people like Rutherford for preaching the way he did. He was termed a term of derision, a nonconformist, after they passed laws that said, the King of England is the head of the church. I'd have been a nonconformist too. I bet you would have too. No, the King of England is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. I'd die for that. Rutherford was willing to as well. He got kicked out of his church. 
1636, he's only 36 years old, he got booted out, sent to Aberdeen by the sea as his exile. Just a few years before, it's important for you to know that Samuel Rutherford's wife and two children died of illness. So here's this heartbroken, sorrowful widower bereft of his children and family, and yet he's faithful to preach the gospel. He does so boldly, and he gets kicked out of Anworth, his church, and yet he says, I'm going to keep on pastoring them. They're going to send me letters that will make their way all the way out to the sea, the coast of Aberdeen, and I'm going to send them letters back answering my people's questions. And that's what we have of Samuel Rutherford, all these little letters he wrote to the people of his church answering their questions as he shepherded them from far away. I admire that so much. These letters drip with pain, and yet they ring with an undying faithfulness in the faithfulness of Christ. He was resolved to see in every page of the Old Testament and the New the glory and the beauty of Christ and Christ's faithfulness, and that's what kept Samuel Rutherford faithful. That's what I want to happen in your life today. I want you to look with me to this brief passage Paul has read and see three aspects of God's faithfulness. God is faithful in his promises because of Christ. God is faithful in his warnings because of Christ. And God is faithful in his mercies because of Christ. You'll see that all here. I want it to be like the plates, the steel plates that weigh down the counterweights in the lift bridge down at the canal. When those steel plates weigh heavy down the cables and the cables run across the pulleys, they lift the bridge of your faith. And the blessings sail in. And the witness pours out. But the only way the blessings pour in and the witness pours out is if your faith is riding high even when you're asked a tough conversation over the dinner table at Thanksgiving. Even as you're responding to emails and texts. Even as you're being challenged in your views of God and His faithfulness and the gospel in your workplace and you face a crisis. How do I respond as a Christian? Or you're facing opposition at school or online or among family members because they think your love for Jesus Christ is either antiquated, passé, or irrational. You need ballast. You need massive weight. So as soon as you click that lever and the motor begins, the mighty weight of your confidence in God's faithfulness starts dropping those mighty plates and then rises goes your whole platform, your house and your platform, and the bridge is open, and the horn blares, and in come the blessings, and out go the witness. I want to put those plates on the counterweights of your confidence in God's faithfulness today. I want you to see with me, in the first paragraph, verses 1 through 5, the promises of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. In the second paragraph, I want you to see the warnings of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. And in the final, I want you to see the mercies of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. You know what's happened here. David has been the secret king, and he has honored even those of Israel who were fighting against him in their seven-year civil war 
Abner died, but he honored him. Ishbosheth was murdered, but he honored him, both from the house of Saul. David has proven himself both to the people of Judah, his tribe, as well as to the Israelites, that he's a good king. He's a faithful king. He's a king that brings peace and safety and honor and order to the place of Israel where he is called to be king. Here in 2 Samuel 5, finally, Ishbosheth, their king, has died. Abner, their general, has died. So the elders and the people of Israel repent of their fighting against Judah and David. And they come and they make a confession of their allegiance and their willingness to come and submit by covenant under David. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me. Let's see how they make this confession, this repentance, and see how David responds. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. We're Israelites, your family. We have a shared covenant under God. And in times past, even when Saul was king over us, listen to what they say, it was you, David, who led out and brought in Israel. We know Saul killed his thousands, but you killed your ten thousands. We knew the Lord's hand was with you, and yet we kept fighting against you all these years. How irrational sin is. A new God was putting his blessing on David, but I fought against him for seven years. That's what they're saying. They said, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, said to you, David, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. They knew they were God's people. They knew they were God's people. And they knew David was their shepherd. And yet they tried to kill him. Everybody on planet earth knows God is God. They're just spending their whole life trying to deny it. Almost every sin is a messed up, irrational, confused effort to try to say, I don't want to treat him as God, though I know he is. Here's the people of Israel coming back and making confession. We knew it was you, David, all the time. We knew God was with you. We knew he had made promises to you. And we knew that you were the one going in and out and leading Israel. And yet we constantly raged against you. Oh, the irrationality of sin. Verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David, it's the first time he gets that great name, King David, made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. He didn't wipe them out. He didn't say, forget it, go back to wherever you came from, I don't trust you. He didn't keep the war going. He mercifully welcomed them back and made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. If the Lord has made a covenant with me, David says, I will mercifully forgive you for fighting a civil war against me and for denying that I was God's king, and for letting Saul chase me, and you joining in with all that craziness. I'm going to forgive you. What a gracious move on the part of newly crowned King David. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. 40 years is a number meant for testing in the Bible. I don't think it's mainly here testing the people of Israel or Judah. I think the 40 years is a test for David, and I think he ultimately fails. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years, six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years, a foretaste of the 33 years 
of his son that will transform the world and the universe forever. Among the people of Israel, God was merciful to grant them to come back and to confess before David the one they had been denying and opposing and even fighting against, that we knew it was you that had God's favor all the time, even as we fought against you. We knew it was you who had God's blessing and was anointed God's king. It was you who was the in-flesh person whom God was keeping his promises to raise up. God is keeping his promises here. He said he would make David king over Israel, a man after his own heart. And here, in fact, is God keeping his promises. You're watching it happen. David is crowned and anointed king over all of Israel. He's made their shepherd. God said he would send them a king to shepherd them. And here it's finally fulfilled in your own viewing. Precious Mercy is on display here as David receives the people back. They returned. They repented. They spoke the truth. If you've ever had a dear Christian friendship and you feel like on your part you've let it fail, go back. Reconnect with that person. Bring a spirit of humility and find that friendship restored. If you left a marriage sinfully, a good marriage, a safe and good marriage sinfully, Return back to that marriage. You'll be received by God and by your spouse. If if you're departed from a good church like this one or another good church, and you know Christ is real and you know the Bible is real, and yet you're trying to live as if it doesn't matter and it doesn't have sway over your life, come back to him and to us or to the church that you belong to. You'll be received by God and by us. The grace that David demonstrates here so lovingly and mercifully and really surprisingly is the grace that's at work in our church and in your life and in my life right now. It's the grace that Christ calls us to receive as as we find ourselves after committing sin, having wasted all his blessings, sitting in the pigsty and saying, at least he could receive me back as an employee and, and so, with dragging feet and sloop, slumped shoulders and a gaunt face and, and clouded eyes, you trudge back to the Lord and say, maybe I can work for Him. Maybe I can be an employee. Maybe I could earn a wage from Him. Well, I have good and wonderful news to all of you who return to the Lord that way. He doesn't receive employees. He only welcomes sons. He puts on your filthy hand a ring that says, I love you, son, and you're mine, you're part of the family. He puts on those shoulders a cape that says, you're safe and you're warm, you're protected, and I love you. And and then he calls for a party and a celebration, and you'll hear the loudest voice in the party celebration, your father singing songs of great joy over you. He doesn't welcome employees, he receives sons. The Apostle Paul declares how God is faithful because he cannot deny himself in 2 Timothy 2. God is faithful to raise up David for Israel. God is faithful to give grace and repentance to Israel so that they would return and make a covenant with their newly anointed king. God is faithful to his church. God is faithful to his name around the world. He cannot deny himself. 
He has raised up his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and declared that all the promises of God, including this one, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. If you trust in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are faithful to you. Ponder and reflect on the fact that the whole Bible is yours and that everything promised to you is yours and and for all who trust in him across the face of the earth. This passage is meant to make us say, thank you, God, for keeping your promises to David and to the people of Israel and Judah, bringing them united under one shepherd king. And thank you that Christ is my shepherd king and you're being faithful to me right now. No hardship in your life, believer, is evidence that God is being unfaithful. He is ordaining every hardship in your life, even the ones that are so painful you can't even name them. Those are under His care and under His wise, good plan. His promises to you are always faithful in Jesus Christ. That's steel plate number one, putting counterbalance weight on your counterweights so that the faith of your hope in God rises high. Number two, the warnings of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. The warnings of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6, and the king and his men went out to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. The very first thing David's going to do is, I'm going to go conquer those Jebusites and get them out of Jerusalem, and that's going to be my new royal city. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. He's a wimp. I'll send the blind and the lame, and they'll ward him off. He's so weak. Those Israelites can't even get along. They've been fighting against each other for seven years. They got no resources. They got no resolve. They got no power to fight a battle in a war. What a fool he is to come take over Jebus and us Jebusites. They tried to do that before, these Israelites, and they couldn't get rid of us. We're here for good. We run and own this place. Bring it on, David. We'll fight you with the blind and the lime. Lame. The arrogance of these Jebusites was rooted in the fact that they had been an evil and idolatrous people for their entire existence. In fact, according to Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, according to Exodus 23, 23, and many other Old Testament passages, Moses had said to the people of Israel, when you come out of slavery in Egypt, go into the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, and remove all of those tribes. Remove all of those tribes. That land is mine. I'm giving it to you, God says. Remove those who have defiled the land with all their wickedness and sin and will not trust in me nor obey my word. And yet the Israelites had failed all the way up to this point from removing the Jebusites from Jerusalem. And so here David is coming and as the king God has raised up and has anointed and made promises to. He's fulfilling what Saul and the rest of the Israelites had failed to do. David is carrying that out right here as his first act as king. It's a glorious picture of God doing right and doing right through his obedient and shepherd and honorable King David. At least in this act, David acts honorably. But the Jebusites are arrogant and proud. And there's a warning here against the proud and the arrogant that they will always come to a fall. 
Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. Zion literally means unknown, but it's, it's a word that's come to mean the people who dwell in Jerusalem, the, the beloved of God that dwell there. That is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. There's quotes around it because he's not actually going to attack the lame and the blinds. He's going to attack those that they send out to fight against him, whom they call the lame and blind. These are those, David has said, my soul is at enmity with them. Therefore it is said, it became a a saying in Israel, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And by no means does that mean actually blind and lame people. What it means is those who were of the Jebusite tribe who thought they were so strong and so arrogant, they are not welcome into the house of David. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. You can see how the Lord is with David, giving him insight and and brilliance as a military commander. Go up the water shaft as a sneak attack. And, And with boldness, fight against the Jebusites and root them out. David was under God's blessing as a military commander. And that's why he became greater and greater, according to verse 10. Your greatness, my greatness... The greatness that any Christian and any believer in Jesus Christ, the son of David, ever has is because God is with us, the Lord of hosts. The God of hosts is a reference to his military power. And it's important for us to have a confidence in God's military and and Lord of hosts greatness because we will be facing battles of a massive sort. We will be facing battles of all kinds. We will strive against enemies. We will strive against spiritual darkness. We'll strive against the the flesh as it rages within. We will strive against all manner of kingdoms and militaries and possibly governments because we simply, like Samuel Rutherford, stand firm in our love of the gospel. Why did David choose Jerusalem? Why did he choose Jerusalem? Well, here's what I think. Here's my study. You take and see if this fits with your understanding of God's Word. We saw Jerusalem once before this. Do you remember way back in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when David was a young teenager and he felled Goliath, took off his head? Where did he bring that head? To Jerusalem. He set it up on a pole. Goliath's head set up on a pole such that in Aramaic the name of of that place where the pole with Goliath's head was, as a warning, a God-appointed warning, was called Golgotha. Goliath's head is on a pole in Jerusalem, outside the city, in a place called Golgotha. Goliath's head. Literally, Golgotha means the place of the skull. Here's a warning. God is faithful. His warnings always come to pass because of Jesus Christ, and they never fail. Ten centuries later, the son of David would die upon a tree on Golgotha, the place of the skull. God commands that sin be paid for with the blood of His Son, 
David here by bringing the skull of Goliath when he was a young man to Jerusalem is now fully enclosed or completed when he comes and says, now I'm king and Israel and Judah are behind me. I'm going to move into the Jebusites who are occupying Jerusalem and I'm going to remove them as God promised would happen. I'm going to carry out God's righteousness in that way and I am going to set up the kingdom of God in its royal uh, palace and in its royal city right in Jerusalem. All this is a foretaste of the of the death of Jesus Christ, the son of David, in Jerusalem ten centuries later, but greater still, hold on to your minds and hearts, greater still, the foretaste of the arrival of the new Jerusalem. When glory is on display in every heart and in every face, and all the people of God are protected, and the warnings will have been fulfilled in all their purposes. The Jebusites of the world should take a warning here. If you stand against the Lord Jesus Christ, be warned. You're on the wrong side of history. You're on the wrong side of eternity. You're on the wrong side of God. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee to Him while you can. Seek His face and ask His forgiveness and cry out to Him in humility if you are in rejection of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of David. David himself, praying and writing Psalm 139, verses 19 through 22, some think it may be related to this, this time when he's battling the Jebusites. Listen to these verses. David says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So this phrase, blind and lame, is code for the enemies of God, the Jebusites. It's not the actual lame in mind, because in a few chapters, David will welcome Saul's nephew, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, into the household. And maybe more pointedly, Maybe more powerfully, maybe more painfully. David will not long from now re realize he himself is blind and lame. By his sin with Bathsheba and killing her husband, Uriah, he himself is the blind and the lame one. No one can read this passage with spirit-granted open eyes and not see that I'm like the Jebusites. I'm the one who must flee to the Lord now and not be found rejecting Him, having boasted that He was defeated by the blind and the lame and yet in a wild turn of my meaning find that that's exactly who I am. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
God requires a holiness without which no one will see the Lord, according to Hebrews 12, 12 through 14. If you're in Christ, you have that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But if you reject Christ, you don't have that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. John says it this way, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The warnings of God are true and unfailing because of Jesus Christ. The warnings of God are true and unfailing because of Jesus Christ. Beware of soul-endangering arrogance that rises up within you. you. You just read this and you want to say, even to David, David, God is with you. He's making you greater and greater. He's united Israel and Judah behind you. He, he's given you victory over the Jebusites. He's blessed you in so many ways. He's given you wisdom. He's given you graciousness and mercy. He's given you patience. How many blessings has he lavished upon you? And yet, what do you do, David? You celebrate not with a worship service, but by going and getting more concubines and wives. Be warned, David. Be warned, all those like David, you and me, who are under God's rich blessing, Oh, the blessings God has lavished on the church of Jesus Christ around the world. Oh, the specific blessings God has lavished upon the landing and upon you and me. Oh, how we must be warned and not grow arrogant like the Jebusites and blind and lame like David. What are you doing, David? You look at the names of these children and you look at the names of the children that were born to him through polygamous, sinful uh, taking of wives and concubines back in Hebron and you say, okay, that's basically the entire cast of all the problem of David's life. Polygamy is never righteousness. Never, never, never. The warnings of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. That's the second steel plank that puts weight on the counterbalance so that when it rides down that cable, the faith of your hope in God and your trust in him rises. Finally, the mercies of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. The mercies of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. How merciful God has been to David, but more than his mercy to David, we'll see his mercy to God's people through David. Look at verses 11 and 12. And Hiram, king of Tyre, that's Phoenicia, over by the Mediterranean Sea on the shore, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees. They don't grow in Jerusalem. They grow near the shore. So this unbelieving pagan king sends gifts, carpenters and masons, who build David a house. We are affirming your kingship, David. We bless you, and we're not even believers in your God. Verse 12, and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. And that he had exalted his kingdom, David's kingdom, for the sake of his people, Israel. David's fame is spreading among the nations. David's uh, reputation is going out as a great leader and as an honorable and gracious and merciful leader who honors even those enemies in their death that have opposed him. He raises up David, and he does so for the blessing of Israel. There's mercy upon David. He's got the nations honoring him, and his people are now united beneath him. He also honors the people of Israel. 
when God raises up a godly king like David, all the people around are blessed. When God raises up godly leaders, the people that follow are always under God's blessing. Paul said in Romans 15, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the, uncirc- to the circumcised, that is, to the Jewish nation, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. God raises up David to say, Israelites, I'm keeping my promises to you. You can trust in me. You can believe in me. You doubted it during Saul's reign. Believe in it during David's reign. But God is also saying, I'm raising up blessing in you, Israel, in order that the nations all around might know who I am and might come and stream to you and find themselves repenting of their sin and trust in you. That's exactly the point of Romans 15. God blesses Israel in order that they might then be a blessing to the nations. And indeed, they are and they were, for they have given us the Messiah, Jesus Christ the righteous. The mercies of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. In Christ, every blessing we have is meant to multiply. Every gift He's given you, every every dollar, every opportunity, every relationship, all your education, every gift he's given to you is meant to be given back to him in order that it might become a blessing, not just for your family or your community or your church, but the nations as they see and hear of him through you. This is a beautiful picture of how Christ fulfilled the very purposes of David. David is pointing forward to the fact that when Christ comes, he is not only a blessing to Israel, but he's a blessing to all those who by faith become sons and daughters of Abraham, the true Israel, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I'm even convinced because of that promise that there's going to be some Jebusites in heaven. God will raise up from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, believers in Jesus Christ, the Son of David, because His mercies never fail, but are certain through Him. God is faithful to you and me. You have much to be thankful for this Thanksgiving, do we not? We have much to be thankful for, even though we see photographs of dear ones whose bodies are struggling with cancer. And we know there may be a day for us. We have much to be thankful for even though there is wars and rumors of wars on the earth and we plead with God to grant peace and protection for the innocents and an end to hostilities. We're sorrowful, yes, we're sorrowful in a deep and almost unspeakable way, but we're always rejoicing, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6. The promises, the warnings, and the mercies of God never fail because of Jesus Christ. That's the mighty ballast pulling down heavy on your life and preparing you for the day when someone will will accost you and persecute you and oppress you because you simply say, salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, and on this truth I will die. Let the promises of God redeem you. Let His warnings sober you. Let His mercies delight you. Samuel Rutherford died in 1661, and here's the very last thing he said before he breathed his last breath. Listen carefully. Final words. My hero, Pastor Samuel Rutherford. Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And then he died. 
Rutherford was faithful because God was faithful. He was strong to the end in the strength that God supplies because he trusted in Jesus Christ and he had so much ballast in the weights of his bridge that his faith was rising high even as his body was breathing its last. No matter what you face, look to Christ. No matter what opposes you, follow him. No matter what fears tempt you to shrink back, trust in him. See him as Rutherford did on every page of Scripture. Love him in every event. Turn your life over to him, not once but repeatedly. Thank him always. Trust his promises, his warnings, and his mercies. They're true for you as they were for David. Because you're in David's son, Jesus Christ. 200 years after Rutherford died, a pastor's wife, a woman named Anne Cousins, was so gripped by reading Rutherford's poignant letters while he was in exile to his church back in Scotland. And she was so taken by his final dying words, she wrote a hymn called The Sands of Time Are Sinking, in which she captured and repeated as a refrain, Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land, the dying words of Samuel Rutherford. Listen to this, just one verse of Cousins' hymn based on Rutherford's letters. The king there in his beauty, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the true and final Jerusalem to come, the heavenly Jerusalem where there's no temple because our meeting place is in Christ. We are the temple of the living God as Revelation has taught us and we will meet you as you dwell within us, unhindered and unbound, infinite in glory and in kindness and in grace forever and ever. Thank you that in the days between now and your second coming, your promises can be banked on to be true, your warnings can be counted on to be true, and your mercies can be enjoyed fully because they're true. Oh Lord, let the weight of your glory in these truths and your faithfulness rest heavy on the people of God at the faith family at the landing so that they might have a very, very high rise to their faith and the blessings will sail in and the witness will sail out. Bless us, Lord, as we share the good news of the gospel of Christ with others who are lost as can be, who, who are full of anger at the hardships they've gone through, who are grappling with hope and find no source of it whatsoever and contemplating horrific things against their own lives who are confused as to who they are and are buffeted about by winds on the right and the left, lying to them about who they are. And even worse, who are confused about who you are and even worse lies are lying about you. Would you help us, Lord, to be so high in our bold declarations of the gospel that even people who think themselves something in this world find us unsettling as they did you. 
what a badge of honor it is to be opposed for loving Christ. Guard us from being obnoxious. Guard us from being fools. Fix our eyes on Christ. Fix our love on Him. Fix our confidence in You, the faithful God, in all Your promises, warnings, and mercies, for they are new every morning. Meet us, Lord, this week as we give thanks. Meet us as we enjoy a holiday. Meet us as we engage in fresh new opportunities of ministry. Meet us as a church as we remember whose and who we are. Oh, how I love you and thank you so much for David and his example and for your great faithfulness to him for our sake. We ask this in Jesus' name and everyone said together, amen. Under God's word, singing together. <laughs>